The Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival creates and performs on the land of the Lekwungen and Wasainic peoples. We respect the relationship they continue to have with the land to this day and the strength of generational resilience in the face of ongoing systemic colonial violence and genocide. As you listen to this podcast, please consider your relationship to this land and remember that every settler is responsible for dismantling the colonial genocide that Indigenous people continue to face. Welcome to the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival's Soliloquy Project, Season 3. This episode features Catherine in Act 2, Scene 4 of Henry VIII. Sound design and theme song for this podcast are by Taylor Lewis. The outro is presented by General Manager Candace Woodland. The podcast is hosted by Artistic Director Karen Lee Pickett. She interviews Dr. Erin Kelly. Welcome back to... The Soliloquy Project, Season 3. I'm Karen Lee Pickett, and I'm joined here again with Dr. Erin Kelly. Hi, Erin. Thanks for joining us again. Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) You are excited because we are talking today about Catherine from Henry VIII or All is True. Oh, well... Part of the story of this play is that uh, this is the play that burned the globe to the ground. This may have been the play that uh, caused Shakespeare to really retire. Uh, So there are references to it around the time when it seems to have been first written and performed. Uh, right around 1612, 1613, um, under the title, All is True. So if you look at for editions of this play, or if you look at anthologies, collected works of Shakespeare, some editors really like to rely on that title, All is True. Other editors like to use the title, Henry VIII. And you'll see them also swapped, Henry VIII or All is True, All is True or Henry VIII. Um, This is a play that was co-authored with another playwright. So it is basically Shakespeare, but it was Shakespeare writing with another playwright named John Fletcher. John Fletcher wrote other plays with, wrote another play with Shakespeare that we know of, Two Noble Kinsmen. The first play that Fletcher seems to have had some success with was actually a play called The Tamer Tamed. Um, sometimes under the title The Woman's Prize, which is basically a sequel to Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. And so Fletcher and Shakespeare's careers get tangled up at a certain point. Fletcher is basically a generation younger than Shakespeare. And after Shakespeare fully retires, stops writing plays entirely, seems to have left London and gone to Stratford full time, Fletcher at that point becomes the king's men in-house playwright. Any particular word or line in this play, is it 100% from Fletcher or 100% from Shakespeare? I don't know and no one else does either. And anyone who tells you that they do for sure must have a time machine in their basement because there you go. This play, Henry VIII, um, is taking a slice of the reign of Henry VIII. Um, And basically it starts uh, with 
right around the time of the last couple of years of the time when Henry is married to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who had been uh, a Spanish princess, ergo the name Aragon, Aragon from Spain. She had come originally to England and married Henry's older brother, who was presumably older brother, presumably going to be the next king, Arthur. Arthur dies very, very soon thereafter, and Catherine gets kept in England and then marries Henry. Um, so the play starts with the last couple of years of Catherine's reign, and it gets us into uh, Henry basically sending Catherine away, annulling their marriage, him marrying Anne Boleyn. The coronation of Anne Boleyn is a big event in this play, and we get the birth of Elizabeth. And then the final scene of the play is basically Archbishop Cranmer uh, with the infant Elizabeth at her baptism, having a prophetic vision of the future that someday this infant will grow up to be a great queen. A great queen, I say, who will do great things. I just have a sense that this will happen. Which, of course, in 1613, 10 years after the death of Elizabeth I probably is a reasonable prophecy for, for someone to be making at the beginning of the 16th century. So right around the time this play was, was written, um, interestingly, uh, James's eldest son, who was presumed to be the next King of England, was named Henry. Um, and Prince Henry is someone who lots of people had looked to as a kind of next great king. He was going to be the next great Protestant king, strong hero. He was beginning to, it's about 14, 13, beginning to really show signs of being interested in military and being strong. And there was, there was kind of a, a lot of, he, he was quite popular. Um, and then he, he rather unexpectedly took ill and died uh, in, in 1612. And so uh, this play was probably written and performed right between the time that Prince Henry died and the time that his sister, whose name is Elizabeth, uh, wound up getting married to a continental Protestant prince, uh, Frederick of Bohemia. And so this particular Henry VIII play, which seems to be celebrating a Henry and celebrating an Elizabeth and thinking a lot about bringing people together and and not taking anything in, in too strident direction may have been very aligned with part of James's project. James really had this idea that part of what he wanted to do was be a peacemaker and that he, particularly through marrying off his children strategically, that he was going to form lots of alliances between Protestant and Catholic nations and ultimately bring about lots of peace and resolution. Um, didn't really work out that way, but it was a nice idea. And this play, I think, is very careful in terms of where it picks its beginning and its end, in terms of what it stages, doesn't stage, in terms of what it highlights and doesn't highlight, so as to not really tick anybody off. And interesting that a uh, uh, detail about where this was performed and its connection with you know, what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we obviously know that it was performed at the Globe 
um, at some point because, like I said, it did burn the globe to the ground. Um, this is part of that, you know, more, 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 uh, a, a cannon. It, well, I, I, yeah, exactly. So, so, so it wasn't but, just the incendiary so it, nature it, it, of the you know, play. It wasn't just the, the play itself by thinking hard. Like exactly. So, I mean, basically, there's there's a scene. Part of the pageantry is that there's a moment when cannons are supposed to be fired at an entrance of of Henry and kind of a you know make big noise, big pageant, big show kind of a way. And we trust me burning a building to the ground in london or just outside of london in the 17th century is the sort of thing that generates lots of records so there are letters and there are people writing their accounts of this we have a number of records of this um what seems to have happened is that you know obviously it's not a cannon used for war it's it's a cannon being shot off just to make the noise so it's stuffed with some kind of stuffing batting paper or something um, and apparently a, a spark from that got up into the thatch of the roof and over the course of two hours, the entire building burned to the ground. The fire seems to have spread slowly enough that everyone did get out. No one died. Uh, no one was terribly injured. The one injury that one eyewitness reported is that a man had his breeches catch fire. And once he get, got out of the building, someone poured ale on him in order to put out the fire. So there you are. Um, by the way, we also know that the Globe was quite the financially successful operation because part of what then happens is that part of what then happens is that the um, the Globe gets rebuilt in one year. It burns to the ground to ash, and one year later they have reconstructed this sucker. So you don't do that unless this this building is bringing you in a lot of money. Yeah. And, um, Catherine, uh, is, I mean, our, our season, um, for the season of the podcast, we're kind of focusing on these, uh, characters that are less known. Um, and, uh, while Catherine of Aragon is certainly a very well-known figure, I think a lot of people probably don't associate her with a, with a Shakespeare play, but she's, this is a great role. It's a great role. And um, it is a great role because she has lots and lots and lots of interesting things to do. She's in a scene where she has a vision of angels. And there's this spectacular scene with angels dancing around her. And then her final sort of deathbed speech is, is her forgiving the king and pleading for him to be kind to their daughter. Um, and then kind of in the middle, there's this huge, huge scene with her having lots and lots of speeches, which is where this chunk comes from, um, which is her basically uh, making the case for why it is not acceptable for uh, Henry and Wolsey and their uh uh, allies to basically now make the claim that her marriage to Henry was never real. It never happened. Um, and what this case is really about is that Catherine had been married to his older brother. And because of that, this is an incestuous marriage. And therefore, it was never really a legitimate marriage in the first place. And therefore, it wasn't a marriage and he has never really been married. 
So essentially what's happening in this scene is that Henry is kind of doing like backsies. Um, that uh, Henry earlier had uh, had a dispensation from the Pope to marry Catherine. And now he wants another arrangement from the Pope to say, whoops, actually that marriage should have never really happened in the first place. And now you are a single guy and you've never really actually been married. Um, that is an interesting trick. So what Catherine is really arguing for here is that she's a legitimate wife. She really has been Henry's wife because Henry is basically trying to claim that his conscience is telling him that he has been in a fraudulent marriage. And that is why he needs to set her aside. And that certainly has nothing to do with the fact that there is an earlier scene in this play when he meets a very, very lovely young woman named Anne Boleyn. No oh, connection no. whatsoever. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and, and what's kind of wonderful in this particular speech, you know, that you've pulled out here that I really love is that it's it's a it's a wonderful example of how Catherine winds up being very very powerful explicitly by claiming that she has no power. You know, so she says things like, you know, I am a simple woman. I am too weak to oppose your your cunning. I I I am just simple, I am weak. You're so much smarter than I am. And yet somehow she has managed to show up at exactly the right moment, say a bunch of things about herself as a wife and her experiences that seem maximally uh, designed to gain the most sympathy from the most people without directly calling out anyone as being corrupt or wrong. She basically points out all of the ways in which they must be terribly mistaken. And then because she is weak and powerful, she appeals to authorities that are above the heads of the people who are trying to make decisions about her, such as the Pope and God. And then she leaves and walks out and leaves this bunch of guys who basically set up this scene uh, thinking that by the end of it, they would be able to simply declare this marriage annulled, basically with their hands tied and unable to move forward. Whenever Catherine says that she is meek, watch out. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's really, uh, she's really playing to the crowd here and, and uh, uh, playing a part. Maybe that's why this, this role has been very attractive to um, actors over the centuries. Very, very attractive. I mean, and this play in particular uh, seems to have been quite popular to stage in both the 18th and the 19th century. Victorian actresses particularly, it was really a star role for a number of well-known uh, Victorian actresses, including uh, Mrs. Siddons, who was also known for, you know, great, performances of Lady Macbeth and Constance and King John and and lots of other really powerful female figures in Shakespeare's plays. And I should say that, you know, I think part of why she's so commanding is that 
as you said, she is playing a part. She's 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 good at playing to the crowd. She's in control of her performance and how it's re being received. But you never get the sense that she's being insincere. No. So somehow she's she is highly performative and completely truthful. And in a play called All Is True, she seems to be one of the few characters who is very much aligned with truth. There are a lot of characters in this play who are explicitly hypocritical or explicitly not saying that they wind up saying that they're not saying what they want to say or where they're hedging <laughs> or they're sneaking up on an idea. And so you have Catherine who is both this powerful, powerful performance and uh, seems so aligned with, with truth. And by the way, in case we miss it, we actually do get a bunch of dancing angels coming down to, to crown her. Um, it, and, and that is fascinating. Um, this is a play that still does get, you know, trotted out. It has been performed um, as recently as this past summer. There was a performance. Right, the Globe did it. At right? The Globe in, in London. Um, and the the role of Catherine is the one that that regularly gets a ton of attention. Um, it is it is a major star role. Um, and yet, you know, this is a play that I think a lot of people I, I, I tend to find, you know, some version of responses along the lines of like Shakespeare wrote a Henry VIII play. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, wait, what? Uh, you know, what, 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 what's it about? What's going on here? Um, there can be a kind of a popular and critical tendency to, to say something along the lines of, you know, well, you know, this scene just doesn't seem as good. So that must be Fletcher. And this one is, this speech is really good. And so this speech must be Shakespeare. Oh I'm not sure it's really worth thinking about that way. I think this is a play that is is trying to do a particular thing at a particular moment. Um, and it's really fascinating. And I also think that it's a wonderful play to look at, to, to think about how, um, people in Shakespeare's time, Shakespeare himself, uh, that they were doing uh, some things that are not so different from our own moment um, of looking at historical events, writing popular texts based, based on that history, but that where those texts are really framing those events in ways that align with our particular moment, interests, issues, etc. Um, I don't think that Shakespeare and Fletcher are trying to be good historians. I think they're trying to be really good playwrights at their particular moment. Um, I think that it would be fascinating, for example, to think about, you know, Shakespeare and Fletcher's Henry VIII as being a bit like you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, you know, what is Hamilton doing with uh, American founding fathers? It isn't telling everything you could tell. It isn't trying to be 100% objective. It isn't, it's, it's interested in other things. Mm -hmm. um, and the same way, 
for me that, you know, Hamilton, part of what makes Hamilton so fascinating is that it brings in these female characters, uh, the Schuyler sisters, um, and makes them this really interesting part of the story. I think that Shakespeare and Fletcher's Henry VIII take Catherine of Aragon and make her this really interesting part of the story Whereas a lot of the other Tudor nostalgia stuff going on in the first part of the 17th century is very focused on Henry. It's very focused on men at his court. And then we have stuff that does focus a bit on Elizabeth. But but Catherine is kind of new as, as something to stage. And I think they're doing really interesting things in terms of just presenting her as this completely compelling, powerful interesting and ultimately tragic character. Mhm. Yeah, and I I I'm glad to have known a little bit more about uh about this play and this role. Thanks for shining a light on that for us, Aaron. Um and you mentioned Constance in King John, so that's going to be our next discussion and we're going to have a very special guest with us I'm as so- well. I'm so looking forward to this. Um, I do hope that uh, people for whom Henry VIII is a new play for them will will treat themselves to spending some time looking into it and and reading it and thinking about it. Um, and then, as I said earlier, uh, if this is you know chronologically in terms of historical chronology, the last history play, King John is the first. And so if you were reading uh, Shakespeare's history plays, King John and Henry VIII uh, might actually jump out more at you in the folio text than it does in terms of our common understanding now of of just thinking about Shakespeare and, and history plays. But boy, these plays have a lot in them that is just really chewy and fascinating and complicated and strange and and talking about uh shakespeare's king john is a wonderful wonderful time so i'm looking forward Mm -hmm. to it oh me too me too so until next time until next time thank you thank you for listening to the soliloquy project produced by the greater victoria shakespeare festival To donate or for more information about our festival, please visit www.vicshakespeare.com. That's www.vicshakespeare.com. Stay safe and we'll see you again soon.